Hello and welcome to the 10th and concluding part of my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. This will be the last in the series, but let us not stop the discussion here. I invite any of you who might be interested in talking or writing about the dodgy science and woeful ethics of COVID-19 on my blog to get in touch by leaving a comment uh, either on the blog or here, or here on Facebook. <clears throat> Yesterday, we ended with a discussion of some of the puzzles and paradoxes in COVID-19 transmission in different settings. We talked a bit about how some of the facts indicate that the virus does not transmit, as the epidemiologists argued, in a seamless fashion from one person to the other in the same line of contact until you intervene to break the chain of transmission. And we need to look into this because the whole flatten the curve approach propounded by the epidemiologists, the World Health Organization and public health experts was premised on the assumption that any kind of encounter with an infected person in a two meter radius would result in transmission. That is how they got their billions of modeled case predictions. Uh, uh, 7.8 billion cases is what they had said, leading to 40 million deaths. And we have been resuming social and economic activity for three months and more all over the world with nothing like these numbers anywhere in sight. <clears throat> Today, we will continue to look at some of the anomalies of COVID-19 transmission. But before we do that, I want to talk to you a little bit about why this is important. The reason is this, in order to conquer, you can go to war, but there is another path to conquest, and that is love. What do I mean by this? How can you love a virus? especially one that wants to kill you and uh, just kill everyone. Well, it doesn't have to be this way. Let me take you away from the thoughts of death that have haunted you all these months to thoughts of love. When we fall in love with someone, we are acutely aware of every word, every gesture. We are fascinated by every line of their face every nuance of expression, every inflection of voice. And we have to do something like this with SARS-CoV-2, the reigning queen of viruses today. As you know, Corona means crown. Instead of thinking of the coronavirus as this dreadful adversary, uh, as this demon of death that we can hardly bear to even look upon, we should make this virus into an object of fascination for ourselves. What is this? What makes it so strong? How does it find us? What does it want from us? How can I feed it in a different way than with my death? Can I calm it down? Can I distract it? Maybe Instead of engaging in war with SARS-CoV-2, we can engage it in play, in some form of give and take, like the passing of a ball between players in a tennis match. Maybe we can find some kind of exchange, if you like, with SARS-CoV-2 that will allow us both to live in harmony. War is not the only possibility. And anyway, Let's face it, the war has been won by SARS-CoV-2, hasn't it? We went into an unprecedented lockdown. We took other extreme measures. In places like India, we did this at a few hundred cases. And today, we have over 12 lakh cases, over 1.2 million. Containment has been a success only if you take the epidemiologist's claims 
of billions and billions as a standard. The war on COVID-19 has been lost. Let us find other ways of dealing with it, beginning with really trying to understand this disease. This is what I have tried to do in this lecture series, bringing you to the point where we left the discussion yesterday, looking at some of the anomalies and paradoxes of COVID-19 transmission. Continuing in this vein, another aspect of COVID-19 that deserves closer attention is its clustered nature. <clears throat> I will not take your time here to go through my cluster analysis, but I invite you to have a look on my blog uh, where I have discussed Italy, England, the US, including state-wise figures for the US, Japan, Pakistan, India, and of course China, among other countries. What you will see um, is that the pattern of cluster transmission can be seen all over the world. There is no homogeneous growth, although the epidemiological analysis going as far back as 2006, including uh, by people like Neil Ferguson, uh, was premised on the understanding, on the assumption that growth would be homogeneous in any jurisdiction. In some countries like India, COVID-19 has been an almost entirely big city disease for months and months together. So while cases grow and they spread to different cities, they remain concentrated for quite a long time in a few places and cities. Even within cities, spread is clustered, moving from neighborhood uh, to neighborhood and in general, holding to early trends in terms of where the most cases appear. Some of the clustering and uh, some of this consistency in trends can be accounted for by lockdown. It can. But given the difference in the timing and quality of lockdown from place to place, there is a strong indication that unlike the epidemiologist predictions of homogeneous growth if left unchecked, COVID-19 transmits in a series of clusters with in most cases each new cluster being smaller in size and density than the previous ones. The clustered nature of COVID transmission has implications for deciding uh, on the best ways to tackle it. For example, given the clustered progress of the disease, there should be more attention to sharing medical resources and giving other assistance at the interstate, interdistrict, and even interneighborhood level. This has not happened to any great degree in most countries. The Chinese were able to send large teams of doctors from other provinces into their COVID-19 epicenter of Hubei and this ability to call on doctors from other provinces was a great strength of the Chinese response to COVID-19. Unfortunately, it did not occur to the same measure in other countries. In India, there is no drive to coordinate doctors and other health workers between states. The New Delhi state government, revealing its focus on numbers over people, tried to issue a rule barring people from outside the city from coming here for treatment. This was struck down by the central government, but its motivation was more political than humane, uh, which was to show up the Delhi government, which is run by an opposition party. These kinds of political games between national governments on the one hand and provincial, state and city level uh, governors, mayors uh, on the other uh, were played in countries all over the world, all over the world from Japan to the US, India, Brazil and so on. What's happening is that by making COVID-19 into a game of numbers, we are not giving the right incentives to our politicians to care equally about every life everywhere. We're encouraging them to take heartless action 
like locking borders or refusing treatment to outsiders or hoarding medical resources just to show that their numbers are lower than others. Even for those who are still in a warlike frame of mind against SARS-CoV-2, this is hardly a way for us to go to war over anything with such little unity in the ranks. We need to start thinking nationally rather than locally when it comes to treatment and assistance for COVID-19. We also need to clear up some of the confusion about basic epidemiological concepts that have persisted in all these months of the COVID saga. The confusion in the mind of the supposed experts about COVID-19 was compounded by wide public misunderstanding, mostly generated by a clueless media, about key epidemiological terms like infection fatality rate, IFR, and case fatality rate, CFR. The IFR of a disease is the ratio of the number of deaths from that disease to the number of infections in the total population. This is to be distinguished from the CFR, which is calculated by dividing deaths to cases at any point in time. The CFR does not give a population-wide picture of the fatality resulting from the disease for a number of reasons. For instance, <clears throat> Owing to the delay from infection to symptom onset, you may miss the true number of cases at a given point of time, which would lead to an overestimation of the overall death rate. On the other hand, the CFR would not include cases that had not yet had an outcome, which could result in an underestimation of the overall mortality rate, depending on what the outcomes eventually are. So the CFR is not a measure of the overall mortality uh, rate of a disease. Also, depending on when and where you're looking, the CFR changes. So for instance, China reported a CFR of 17.3 at the start, which went down to 0.1 as the epidemic progressed. For this reason, the initial CFR rates calculated while an outbreak is ongoing are also called crude CFRs. Even the people who use them don't take them as an as a absolute or final conclusion about the general mortality associated with the disease. So the popular media was very wrong to quote CFRs as if they were a population-wide estimate of the expected mortality from COVID-19. And one such figure was what was called the WHO CFR. Uh, sometimes they said it's 3.8, sometimes it's 2.6 for China because this sent shockwaves through the reading public as the mortality rate for the flu and other similar illnesses is a fraction of that. But this is because the IFR, which is based on a population-wide range of cases, is usually a fraction of the CFR, which is based on a subset of the cases of the population. About the IFR, we also have to understand that there is no direct counting of the number of infections in a population. So epidemiologists, guess what they need to do to find the IFR? They need to estimate it. Estimates again. For their estimation, epidemiologists use data from uh, serological surveys, which is sampling for antibodies in the blood. The, the sampling, again, is an estimation because you, you first decide the pool of the population from which you're going to do the sampling and then you get the result. And based on that, then you do a further modeling on uh, what the infection rate may be. Another way of estimating the IFR, which I was quite surprised to discover, is what the is how the Imperial College epidemiologists did it. They actually estimated the IFR from the CFR. So, and you know, this it's quite a questionable way of going about it, according to me, because it basically collapses the difference between the IFR and the CFR. But uh, no one noticed or raised a question. Uh, there are two things to understand here. One, that any IFR, since it's an estimation, is subject to all the uncertainties and possibilities of being mistaken, as we discussed in my initial two lectures about epidemiological modeling. The more important lesson is that in the normal course, we don't follow disease in real time. Okay. Uh, we don't, uh, for any other disease, we don't count the cases and deaths as they emerge and then estimate severity from there. 
And this is very important uh, to understand because all the numbers that went flying around and are still being bandied about on COVID-19 really only make sense if, if there is something to compare them with. And this is a problem because a number by itself gives very limited information and numbers that are very small or very large can be misleading if taken simply by themselves. Uh, for example, if I tell you that Iceland has only 100 deaths from infectious disease in a year, that tells you one thing, right? If I then tell you that Iceland overall has only 2,000 or so deaths a year, that tells you another thing, right? If I tell you that India has 10 lakh, that's 1 million COVID cases, that tells you one thing. If I tell you that India has over 31 lakh, 3 million tuberculosis cases a year, that tells you another thing. If I tell you that India has 26,000 COVID deaths, that tells you one thing. If I tell you that India has 2.7 to 4 lakh uh, tuberculosis deaths, that's uh, 270 to 400,000 tuberculosis deaths a year. 1 million, that is 10 lakh diarrheal disease deaths a year. And 6 lakh, that is 600,000 respiratory uh, infectious disease deaths a year. All these numbers, as I keep telling them to you, tell you several other things. If I tell you that the US has over 30 lakh, that is over 3 million COVID cases, while its annual tuberculosis and HIV cases are 10 lakh, 1 million each, that tells you something. When I tell you that the US typically has 60,000 deaths a year from respiratory infections and the death toll from COVID is 1.4 lakhs, that's 140,000 and counting, that tells you something else. And <clears throat> if I tell you after these facts that the US has 22 to 24 lakh, that's 2.2 to 2.4 million deaths a year from non-infectious diseases, that tells you yet a third and entirely different thing. So, in order for us to really speak intelligibly about the COVID numbers, or any other numbers, we need to know something about what the numbers for other diseases are, right? But here we run into dif the difficulty that in the normal course, we don't follow uh, this uh, disease in real time, okay? So we don't have outbreak curves for any other disease because they are never plotted in real time and uh, in the same way as was done for COVID-19. So we never had, we've been seeing all these graphs, okay, but we've never had an outbreak curve from another disease with which we could compare what's going on with COVID, with the curves for COVID that we keep seeing. <clears throat> we also have, uh, like we don't have any counting for uh, infection fatality, we don't have any actual counting for other diseases either, for cases for other diseases either. In order to determine the case incidence or the mortality rate for any other disease, epidemiologists need to do estimation. Estimation again. So anything that you hear about the number of cases, say for tuberculosis, AIDS, malaria, whatever disease in any country, they are not actual counts. Uh, they are not even rough aggregations or averages uh, taken from hospitals of cases. Okay, They are modeled estimates and therefore the numbers for each of these diseases whatever you see is subject to all the uncertainties and inaccuracies that we discussed at the start of this lecture about epidemiological modeling so where does this leave us basically we are all punching in the dark when we're trying to figure out exactly what the covid numbers mean it's a quagmire of estimates what is so you know how, how should we think about this right okay let me tell you <laughs> what's more useful and reliable is what we can see not through the crystal ball of epidemiological modeling but what we see and have seen 
right from the start with our own eyes, which is that many people were falling ill and dying fast from COVID-19 and, and uh, that it was not amenable to conventional treatments. This is really all the information that we needed to start thinking and responding intelligently to this disease. Instead of being fixated by how big the outbreak would be and trying to preempt that with an untested hypothesis about pandemic control, which in the end failed, we should have focused on following the outbreak as it happened, trying to keep it within clusters where possible, dispersing it instead of locking down where we found it to have concentrated as in the case of old age homes, we should have been a lot more focused not on social distancing but on international travel which is by far the first and most effective driver of this disease. The community awareness efforts should have been on encouraging people who had a history of international travel since January to practice quarantine, hygiene and social distancing and for business travelers to conduct their meetings online where possible. We should have immediately started working with the tourism industry to find ways of mitigating and dispersing travel-related COVID transmission but in a respectful and voluntary way by offering medical services and warning people to watch out for symptoms of cold and fever. <clears throat> Instead of locking down slums and basically imprisoning poor people uh, in countries like mine, since the household, that is, by which I mean homes of well-off people with family members having a history of travel, since this type of household was the main theatre for the transmission of COVID in cities, in countries like India. We should simply have re requested these people to give their domestic staff a few days holiday while they quarantined from foreign travel. Okay, and you know, I want to make it clear again here, when I say that we should have looked at for foreign travel, I'm not talking about bans and, you know, some kind of um, a magic uh, formula, you know, like we will have a we'll have a two week shutdown of travel, international travel, and there'll be no COVID. No, there, there is a every travel ban, even a, te a temporary sus suspension has a very real human cost. I think we all have stories of people whose parents passed away while they were abroad and you know just other really nightmares okay so this is not to say that there should be bans but there should be a clear understanding that a pandemic basically the definition of a pandemic is that it spreads through international travel and the that you know there has to be a focus on encouraging and facilitating uh, uh, precautions for those who are associated with international travel and the problem for the poor people in whose name this whole drama has been done and you know I think that after this we should all start making lists of the calls that we are getting from people who have lost their livelihoods and are in a, a really dire situation in order to protect them all that we had to do was to request that precautions be taken in places where they have an interface with all of us fortunate and wealthy people who travel around. Okay, because that's basically what happened. People brought this in from international travel in India. They then gave it to their domestic staff. And then, you know, they started falling ill and then it came back, um, uh, uh, you know, to households. Okay, and so, you know, uh, uh, this, is, this, this is the lesson that we need to learn. I mean, lesson is a very strict word. This is the understanding that we have to arrive at. Okay, this is how the transmission really happens. Not in this imaginary world. It was like a video game what the epidemiologists did. You know, as if there's this virus flying through everywhere and it's just catching people. Ping, ping, ping as you come across it. That's not how it happened. Okay, so uh, please let us remember this. Okay, let us not repeat this mistake again. What we have done is just terrible. Right. Okay. So, and on, on the issue of foreign travel, we should uh, not have been solely focused on Wuhan and China. We should have kept in mind lesson number one of pandemics, which is that they come from all countries at once. 
And we should have remembered that in a globalized world, by the time you see an outbreak in one place, you have to assume that it is in many other places already. And we should then have focused on shoring up our medical resources to whatever extent we could and not got into this foolhardy enterprise of containment. We should have realized, we should have been realistic about the limited effectiveness of containment measures and mindful of its very serious and harmful social, political, health and economic effects. We need to understand that uh, there is no escaping the uncertainties of disease estimation, even with large-scale testing. Led by the WHO's exhortation to test, 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 people everywhere have insisted with their governments on more and more testing as a way of containing COVID-19. But even though some countries try to do real-time testing, Let's look at the figures, okay? Uh, they try to do real-time testing to assess disease prevalence, but no country had the resources to test everyone at once. By the middle of May, Iceland had conducted the highest number of COVID tests per million in the world, but this amounted to only about 16% of their population. Being a small and remote country, it was able to keep its COVID numbers down with a combination of testing and case isolation. Okay, this could work if you're a small country, a remote country, a very sparsely uh, uh, populated country or a city state. Okay, it could work. But, you know, the social cost and the other economic cost is still there. Uh, and but anyway, uh, it's simply not feasible for bigger countries. It's not feasible. And, you know, let's look, keep looking at the figures. By early July, the U.S. had conducted the most tests in the world. 37 million, 3.7 crore, but this covered only about 11% of its population. Monaco was able to test the maximum percentage of its population, 41%, but this amounted to only 16,200 tests. The richer Arab countries like the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain were able to test 35% of their population, and they and some other small and well-off countries like Luxembourg, Denmark and Singapore were able to use testing to significantly contain the virus. But in absolute numbers, their tests, even by early July, were a fraction of the tests conducted by countries like the UK over 1 crore, Russia over 2 crores, and um, that's 10 million and 2 million, and the US. Right? For bigger nations, in the middle of their outbreaks, besides the cost of population-wide testing, there is also the question of the massive infrastructure and manpower needed for this. Let's take South Korea. To find a few hundred COVID infected when their second outbreak was traced to some nightclubs, tens of thousands had to be contact traced. A few weeks later, so they did this, then a few weeks later, a case occurred involving a woman who went to a park and then there was a scramble to locate every single person who visited that park. So now the South Koreans may have found that this approach made sense to them, but it is not an obvious model for other countries. No matter what, you know, a lot of these epidemiologists like Neil Ferguson, after finding that there's suppression and lockdown and even the WHO did this, it wasn't working. They said, that, no, 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 but we weren't just talking about suppression. You also have to do testing and you have all you have to do the South Korean model. Hang on a minute. You know, let's think about exactly what that means. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's really, it's not practical. Not when you're in the middle of the outbreak. You know, if you're looking at a few uh, hundred, two hundred thousand cases a day, that's different. Okay, but it's not going to work uh, when you're in the middle of the outbreak. So before prescribing these models to ourselves in a country like India, we also have to understand the full nature of the South Korean response. I already told you that they used uh, information technology to do diagnosis, to uh, send, uh, you know, x-ray results to... Um, to uh, liaise between uh, the uh, medical chemists and, and people in households. So, you know, this was a full risk. It wasn't just about testing. You know, they took care of the entire medical uh, response using uh, their information technology infrastructure. And uh, they also went to the extent of providing lower income families with Samsung tablets to continue their children's education. So, you know, this is a very thoughtful and holistic use of uh, their uh, of information technology it wasn't just a testing and contact tracing model at all
and uh, the cell phone network that the south koreans used for this was already in place as and they said as an emergency response system and uh, in all likelihood this had been developed in context of their historical situation with north korea so you know i mean again uh, you, things look like a uh, one size fits all solutions but actually they arise out of the local experience and the local context and so the lesson for us from south korea is not so much the use of testing and contact tracing but to do as they did in terms of intelligently identifying and then leveraging what you have locally in conceiving practical sensible and effective responses to this disease okay i now uh, finally uh, proceed to my conclusion and uh, with some regret because i have really enjoyed uh, or, or you know these these sessions and uh, as i said at the start i hope that we can find a way of keeping the conversation going on my blog with discussions and writings from all of you do get in touch if you'd be interested right so <clears throat> to conclude i have shown you the many ways in which the epidemiologists the world health organization and public health experts proceeded on a wrong scientific understanding of the pandemic from the start we underestimated the speed and global spread of this disease this led us to take up a containment strategy that was doomed to fail and being fixated on society wide containment measures and on saving hospital resources we failed to notice for too long the discrete places where disease clusters actually took root and the channels through which they mainly transmitted not only did the containment strategy fail it caused damage and destruction of many more kinds including death and sickness and to many more people than would have ever been caused by covid-19 alone the hysterical fear that has been created around this disease will inhibit a return to normalcy in many areas of life for years if not decades to come every sphere of life that functions around the gathering of people especially the arts and festivals will be particularly repressed and for the longest time we have quite literally taken the color and music out of our lives other than the deaths and hunger the suffering loss of livelihood forced displacement and economic and social disruption from containment measures we fail to understand that such measures are inherently unjust stigmatizing divisive and that they fall hardest on the poor and marginalized and minorities in our societies all these wrongs must be accounted for the who director general tedros adhanom and health emergencies executive director mike ryan must resign they must resign there has to be an independent and public inquiry into the manner in which the world health organization has conducted itself throughout and not just during the covid saga but also in other epidemics such as ebola and bird flu the imperial college of london the imperial college of london must suspend its epidemiology department and face an ethics inquiry and not just neil ferguson and his team but the entire management of that university in fact all big universities around the world need to show that they have understood and taken seriously this crisis which is a crisis of weak thinking and woeful ethics in the sciences and public policy field you have got away you in the universities you have got away because people do not have the knowledge and the confidence to challenge you but if you have any integrity then you will admit the failures of scholarship 
and of principle that in many ways created the COVID crisis. And beware, take this as notice to all of you in your universities, that I am not the only ordinary person in the whole world who can pick up your medical journals and pull out your epidemiological reports and start reading them and seeing right through them. I'm not the only person. So, all you professors and researchers in your comfy positions in your universities, you can either come out now and meet the truth halfway, or the truth is going to find you and punish you. Public health experts. Public health experts must introspect over the devastation that has been caused by their oversimplistic and numerical approach to health issues. They need to throw away their lists of health indicators and epidemiological modeling. They have to find a way of weaving the humanity back, of weaving the humanity back into public health thinking and never letting it go ever again. A good way of keeping your feet on the ground, you guys in public health, is to abandon utopian thinking on health issues. The idea of eradicating disease and injury altogether from our lives is bizarre and self-defeating. It is this idea that has led to the soul-destroying use of the precautionary principle in social welfare thinking. We must stop second-guessing life. We should go back to basic ideas of giving assistance when the need for it appears. Chance is part of life. You public health experts, you cannot subtract chance from life. That is not how the mathematics of life works. All you end up doing, you public health experts, all you end up doing is cutting off life in order to stop it from running into chance. And as a member of the lay public, as an ordinary citizen of the world, as a mother, I say to your grand schemes of global control over disease, death and luck, enough! Enough! Give me back my life and I'll take my chances. Whenever we humans make blindingly obvious mistakes and allow blatant injustices and foolishness to pass, as we have done with COVID-19, then we also have to look at the three fingers that point back at us when we point to those who led us to make these mistakes and commit these injustices. <clears throat> all this folly, all this folly took place within a framework of a certain wrong way of thinking in science and in social welfare, a way of thinking that we have all come to accept and even to celebrate. Science has left its roots in theory too far behind, too far behind, and now seems to spend all the time playing games with mathematical modeling and supercomputers. This is not the way to produce good science. All this epidemiology and these supercomputers are taking us away from science and not towards it. If we're relying more on supercomputers and algorithms than on our brains to do science, then we have to assume that there is something wrong with our science. The brain must lead the machine. Numbers are an adjunct to thinking, not a substitute for it. That's when you have good science. Anything else is just a rarefied form of accountancy. Public policy and social development also have to end their romance with modeling and numbers. You're killing common sense and humanity with your indicators and projections-based approach. 
like public health experts you're forgetting the people behind the numbers you're also not conscious enough that when you design interventions for the betterment of society uh, of the danger of using the state as your ally in so doing in recent years there has been a tendency in welfare thinking to ignore the adversarial aspect the adversarial aspect of the relationship between state and citizen the state is seen as the engine for delivering welfare for helping those left behind and therefore uh, it is said has to be accepted and uh, trusted by all good hearted and responsible citizens anyone standing in the way is seen to be violating their responsibility both to society and to themselves but we're seriously undermining the very freedoms and liberties on which we rely on which we rely to keep our society just and fair by giving in too completely to this way of thinking the assumption when using the state to intervene on welfare grounds must be that things could go wrong in unpredictable ways but also in predictable ways in the predictable ways of state overreach corruption and incompetence instead of digging their heels in on one side or other of various social development models or blaming the government for not acting strongly enough or blindly asking for more money to be pumped into welfare schemes that go toxic social development professionals should be vigilant about interventions that go bad they should be at the forefront of moves to stop or change course right now there is too much of a superior attitude in the social welfare field about these things social development professionals ngos activists and philanthropists are so caught up in the nobility of their mission to save the world that they are not willing to accept that they themselves might be creating and perpetuating the inequalities and injustices that they set out to conquer <clears throat> as i came to the end of writing this paper i found a fascinating debate between noam chomsky and michel foucault from the 1970s for those uh, listening in from the netherlands uh, i think this was broadcast on dutch television in 1976 or thereabouts and uh, this uh, debate reflects upon uh, some of these issues very uh, aptly Chomsky the progressive argues that we must intervene constantly to improve society uh, to make it just and fair and that such an approach is in turn founded upon an idea of the ideal man in all his goodness creativity and other potential Foucault the postmodernist says in reply that structures of power will inevitably influence how you articulate the principles of a just and fair society and how you conceive of the ideal man and so says foucault any intervention carries the possibility <clears throat> of perpetuating the very imbalance of power that produced the injustice or other social ill that you set out to correct Foucault here is not really arguing against social action. He was pointing towards what the right philosophic approach to social action must be. He was saying what we saw him say in the birth of the clinic about the role of economic and social dynamics and even of sheer chance in forming systems of thought or practice. If you have social action that is not reflective about this that will not concede this that questions the motives of people who try to point this out that is when it becomes oppressive and just another form of the unjust exercise of authority and control over others and this is where we are today with social welfare interventions of all kinds of all kinds of which the lockdown has only been the most dramatic and widespread my own interest in this matter comes from the field of child protection
where I have for many years been witnessing the brutal snatching of children by the state from loving families for no good reason and with an absolute refusal on the part of the child rights field to do something about it. I first witnessed this system in the Nordic countries of Norway and Sweden and I was struck by the widespread support in these societies of their child services. Everything I saw in the way child protection functions in these countries, the intrusiveness, the punitive approach, the lack of transparency, decisions being taken by executive power, the lack of due process, all of this contradicted the openness and freedoms for which these societies are so famous. It was in struggling to understand this contradiction, which I had at first approached simply as a lawyer concerned about basic principles of due process and administrative accountability, that I saw the full extent of the pact that binds people to the state in the Nordic welfare model. I saw that when you rely on the state to take care of you, it really does take care of you, in the sense that you are subject to its interference to a much greater degree in the areas of life where it intervenes than in those where it leaves you to your own devices. <clears throat> in the United Kingdom, I saw the same aggressive interventionism in the fields of child services and also of uh, elder care and in the provision and withholding of certain types of medical services and in the sectioning of the mentally ill, these areas, child services, elder care, the provision and withholding of certain types of medical services and the sectioning of the mentally ill. Though the British have in general retained their sense of irony uh, and the distance that it uh, implies uh, towards the state in other areas than these, in Sweden and Norway, I found a degree of respect, obedience and solidarity with the state as government, not as nation, with the state as government that would be more in place in an authoritarian regime. Scandinavians are highly conformist and amenable to authority when authority speaks in the language in terms of their welfare. And this is the true context for understanding the so-called no lockdown policy of Sweden. They did not need it because Swedes could be depended upon to follow government advice on social distancing. Look at the facts on the ground in Sweden. And all of this is referenced on my blog. From mid-April, about half of Sweden's workforce was reported to be working from home. From mid-March onwards, there was a 50% drop in the use of public transport in some counties. And there was a 30% drop in Stockholm on the use of cars. Interstate travel over Easter was down by 80-90%. to 90%. So movement was substantially reduced more than in many countries with mandatory lockdowns. And therefore, whatever else the Swedish response to COVID-19 was about, it was not about people having more freedom in Swedish society. If anything, it was symptomatic of the degree to which certain freedoms have been ceded to the state by Swedes a long time ago. And it gets more and more interesting, you know, interestinger and interestinger, if I may coin a phrase. As you keep uh, thinking deeper about the Swedish response to COVID, note how the Swedes did not attempt to justify their strategy by pointing out that they did have a voluntary near lockdown in place. Hmm? Clearly, what this tells me is that they are not willing to disclose just how compliant their people are to the merest suggestions of the authorities. <clears throat> and um, what gets even more interesting is if you think about how this de facto lockdown in Sweden did not satisfy the pro-lockdown advocates elsewhere in Europe and the US. 
This shows the twisted psychology of the pro-lockdowners. They were not so much concerned about whether there had been an effective suspension of social and economic activity in Sweden for the sacred flattening of the curve. What was really getting the lockdowners' goat was that Swedes were being permitted even the theoretical right to decide not to stay at home. And this is where public welfare thinking really reveals itself for the nakedly repressive and dogmatic thing that, is ha- that it has become. These people want nothing less than our blind obedience. And we need to tell them to get lost. Get lost! <clears throat> the philosopher uh, Slavo Žižek recently wrote about COVID-19 that Western governments, when speaking of herd immunity, were like the cat in the cartoon that walks off the precipice and keeps on walking uh, so long as he does not look down. But when he does, he falls. In fact, Western governments were not so innocent as that cat. They suggested herd immunity to cover up their inability to save their people from COVID-19. And when the people objected, they punished them with lockdown. I will leave this this discussion with Zizek's metaphor of the cat. Are we not all like that cat? We are even more pathetic than it because we never have even a second's doubt of the abyss that yawns right before us. Each day is not even a wager against death because we know that death is certain. We simply shrug it off and carry on. We laugh in the face of death. We have snatched meaning and joy from the unrelenting silence and randomness of the universe around us. This is our genius. Let us forget about COVID-19. Let us get back to life. Thank you.